be talking about today is, uh, you know, a little, hopefully not too deep a, a probe into my own mind about how I'm thinking about biology and how, uh, how we can start to understand how life works. Um, obviously, in one hour, we're not going to be able to cover a lot of territory, um, although we'll try. So I'm going to try to give you some, some, a little bit of sense for the way I'm thinking about it. But I want to make sure that the overall message comes home that this is a really, really promising time for biology. It's, 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 it's said that biology is getting into its golden age. And you think, well, gosh, we already know a lot about biology. We know a lot of medicine and so on. But never before have we been able to see organisms at the molecular level the way we can now. Never before have we had genomes, whole genomes of, of humans and all kinds of organisms, mice and, and plants and, and bacteria and so on, and really start to try to figure out how these cells work and how they function. And I'm going to be talking about some pretty basic stuff today, but what I want you to understand is that, is that if, you can, if you can start to grasp some of what I'm talking about or get interested in what I'm talking about, there's an incredibly bright future for you in, uh, in, in, in just about any aspects of this uh, golden age of biology. Um, I just spend a little bit of time to say, you know, that, that, that when someone says how something works, it really depends what they mean with their question. Uh, if you ask how the lights work in this room and you happen to be a theater manager, you just want to know where's the light switch. If you're an electrician, you want to know about the wiring in the building. If you're an electrical engineer, you may want to know about uh, how the circuitry has been designed, how the light bulbs themselves work. And a physicist, you might want to understand uh, some, of the, some of the very basic properties of the materials in the light bulbs, the gases that are being ionized, and so on. So um, uh, different answers are appropriate for different, for, for, excuse me, for the same question, how do the lights work, different answers would be appropriate depending on what you're asking. And the, the take-home message I want you to understand is that, is that, you know, as you ask how and why does that work, how does a protein work, um, it kind of depends on what you know already about proteins, uh, what the answer should be. Um, if you're a biochemist and you ask how this protein works, I might give you an answer, which is uh, in, the, in the language of organic chemistry. If you're a physicist, we might talk about transition states and, uh, and, 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 and energies and so forth. And uh, if you're a biologist, maybe uh, a so-called old-fashioned biologist, that is one that, that, that uh, uh, just thinks of proteins as, as, as units that move around in the cell and do things, then we'll talk about it that way too. It, 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 just, it just depends on, on what you're trying to get out of it in order to learn what you're doing. All right. Um, but a very important thing in all of science, but especially biology, is the, uh, is the concept of conservation as a guide to mechanism. Even if we can't see how something happens, even if we can't see how a protein works, we can't watch it actually do its thing, uh, we can often learn a lot about by examining what's conserved. So, for example, what's needed to change a tire? Just to take a simple activity. Um, how many people here have changed a tire? <coughs> on a car. Yeah, some people have. How many people here think they know how to change a tire on a car? Less people than people who change tires, huh? It would be interesting to see what happened. Um, well, how many people here know what tools are involved in changing a tire? Almost everybody. What, can, can I get some examples of things you need to change a tire? A tire wrench? Go ahead. I'm sorry? If I call on you, you really have to shout it out. 
Okay, you need a tire. That's right. Yeah? A jack. That's right. So, so you, these are some elements. And even if you didn't know how to change a tire, you could probably figure it out having these elements. What about going to the moon? Does anybody know how to go to the moon? Yeah. Go ahead. In a spaceship. That's right. You get a spaceship and you go to the moon. It's pretty simple. The point is that at some level, that's a very correct answer. At another level, it's only the very tip of the iceberg. It's only the beginning. And there's a very complicated set of things you need to go to the moon, like, like astronauts and spacesuits and all kinds of things like that. And, and we've only seen one organization go to the moon, namely NASA. And they did it their way. Maybe there's other ways to go to the moon. So we don't necessarily know what the minimum set of things are that are required to go to the moon. We just know how NASA did it. So that's an interesting thing because nature tries all kinds of things. And so we can learn from nature often how something's possible uh, more than from people. So what's needed to live? DNA. DNA. Water. Proteins. Enzymes. Air. Water. Food. Elements. Okay. Yeah, lots of things needed for life. We're pretty familiar with those. Do we need sleep to live? Yes? No? Maybe? If I'm not mistaken, the latest research shows that you actually will die if you don't. I don't know how they did this research exactly. <laughs> I think maybe on some poor little animals or something. But uh, uh, per, you know, chronic, you know, permanent lack of sleep will, will actually be fatal. Um, what about organs? Do you need all your organs? You, you, you need your heart and your lungs and so on? you need all your organs? What about your appendix? Do you need your appendix? No, vestigial organ. So you don't need all your organs, but, but you start to look around at different animals. You can start to figure out, look, I haven't found a single animal that doesn't have some kind of circulation system. So that's a conserved element within animals, the idea of, okay. And finally, if you're interested in life on other planets, life outside our solar system and so on, you might want to start asking, well, what's needed for life to appear? Period. You know, and these are questions that NASA is ask, asking right now. And as I talk about DNA and proteins and so on, you might start to think, well, huh, maybe there's another way to do that. Uh, do we really need these things? How do these things get here and so on? Um, let me just take you through a couple quick examples of some abstract sequence comparisons. Imagine that you have these sequences. Well, you don't have to imagine. I've put them up here. And I'm losing the batteries. But anyhow, um, these sequences are, look at them for a little bit. Are they mostly similar or different? Or what do you see? Who says they're mostly similar? OK. Do you see any differences? Yeah. Yeah. If you ha I'm just going to point them out. If you haven't seen the differences yet, they're right here. Otherwise, they're identical. It turns out that this is a very useful way to write down the sequence of a protein. Of course, this would just be a little tiny piece of a protein. This is only uh, uh, eight amino acids. But you can write down the amino acid codes, the little building blocks of proteins, with single letters. I'll show you that code later. And you can compare proteins. And if this is a protein from humans and mice, and, and, and giraffes and donkeys, then you can compare, gee, how are these proteins similar or different? And apparently, this amino acid either makes you more human-like than mouse-like, or it doesn't matter. Maybe it's just not an important amino acid. Okay? 
What about this set of sequences over here? What do you notice? Pretty, pretty different, yeah? Look at them carefully. See some similarities there? Hold, since I can't hear everybody at once, hold up the number of fingers of amino acids you see that are similar. Four. Okay. So it's this block here. By the way, if you were really looking carefully, you might see ATA and ATA here. There's something maybe going on here. This is another way, another, say these are another set of proteins. Maybe these proteins are from very different organisms, like you and bacteria. But you have enzymes which actually have similar functions. And they may have blocks of amino acids in a row in those enzymes which have to be the same in order to perform that function, whether you're a bacterium or a human being. So the, the main take-home message here is the idea that conservation points to something important. If something's conserved, it must be important, and it kind of gives us a hint as to what mechanism might be. We're going to talk about that later, too. Okay. And then finally, control versus randomness. Um, we're very much in control of ourselves. We, 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 I think we all believe in, 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 in uh, 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 freedom of movement, freedom of thought, you know, that we're not predestined to, to do everything and think everything. Um, if you want to ride your bike to the store or to school or something like that, everybody here know how to ride their bike somewhere? And if you're not able to get from point A to point B because there's a roadblock, what would you do? You go around. You go down a different street, yeah? There's different ways, there's different paths to get from point A to point B. So you can think, well, even if random events happen, you know, suddenly there's an, an accident, some cars crash into each other, and they block the road, I can just go around that. So that's what sentient beings can do. Cells, it turns out, can do similar things. They can start motoring along. Bacteria have flagella, which help them to swim. And they can motor along, and they get to a certain point, they decide, oh, there's no sugar this way but I think I sent some sugar that way, and then they start swimming that way. So cells can, can, can uh, uh, kind of decide where they're going, but to some extent, what's happening to cells is pretty random, right? I mean, you can pour anything you want on them, and they have to deal with it. Well, proteins are just molecules, and they don't get to decide anything about their environment, uh, and then they have to deal with it, and they're obviously not sentient, they can't think, so they have certain rules, they have to obey physical laws, chemical laws. And a concept that I'm going to talk about in a moment is that free energy proteins fold up and do their things according to the laws of physics and chemistry. All right, so just to drive this point home, think about a river. Is a river uh, a controlled thing or a random thing? Well, some of both, right? I mean, it, it certainly channels the water. What about the appearance of a river? Well, if you go to the right time scale, you'll find that rivers appear and disappear on the time scale of hundreds of thousands to millions of years. And, and on that time scale, things are just coming and going, and it all seems pretty random. So even something as clear as like the Sacramento River on a different time scale will seem like, oh, it just, just happens to be there right now. And now I want to talk about the plight of a ball in a pinball machine. Everybody here know what pinball? I realize that this is dating me a little bit, but I used to play a lot of pinball when I was a kid. You, anybody here ever play pinball? Oh, wow. On the computer or real pinball? Real pinball, okay. All right. What, what happens to a ball eventually always in a pinball game? It goes down that hole at the bottom. Why do balls always go down that hole eventually? 
What makes them go down? Gravity. I heard gravity. Okay, but gravity isn't making me go down. The, the table's on a slant and the ball's round and it can roll. Exactly. And if you've ever played, if you've played as much pinball as I have, you know that sometimes, once in a while, the ball will get stuck somewhere. Just, it's not designed to get stuck, but once in a while it does get stuck somewhere. We could call that place it eventually goes, we could call that the global minimum, the place that it wants to finally rest. And we could call that place that it gets stuck along the way a, a local minimum. And so here's kind of a picture. This is an abstract view of a pinball game. It's got all kinds of obstacles and so on. And as the ball rolls around in there, eventually it finds that, that hole that you don't want it to go down. You try you know, with your flippers and so on to keep it from going down there. And this is a, just a two-dimensional version of that. Here's the place where it maybe gets stuck, but if you shake the table a little bit, it'll pop out and go down that hole finally. Okay. Now, I know the object of the game, pinball, is to keep the ball from going down the hole. But in nature, there's nothing to keep stuff from going down to find the energy minimum. So when proteins are, 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 are built, they just naturally slide down and find their folded state. They go to this energy minimum. And they do that because there's thermal energy. They bounce around in here until finally they fall down into that state. And we're going to fold a protein up here on stage today. And you'll see that random motion. And you'll see it kind of collapse down into a folded state. OK. So if I say central dogma of biology, probably only a few people know what I'm talking about, right? How many people know have heard the term central dogma of biology? OK, just a few. All right. All right. Well. All it is is like basically that, that the DNA, which is after all the genome, the genome is written in DNA, the DNA has the instructions for the cell, then there's a message, messenger RNA, which is written from those instructions, you can think of that as a single page of instructions, I've got a big library here, that's the genome, I take a page, I Xerox it, that's the message. The message is that one page. And I send it over to another part of the cell where proteins are made. The proteins are made according to those instructions. And that's basically the central dogma of biology. That, that DNA, uh, is, is it, when cells replicate, DNA is replicated. And then the DNA is there ready to make proteins through these messages. And here's kind of a, just a, a nice view of, 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 of a chromosome. This is a cartoon of a chromosome, a piece of one anyway. Maybe, how many people have seen pictures of chromosomes? <coughs> OK, well, I, I probably should have. There, there were some in the montage, actually. They tend to look like X's when the cell is, is, is off and functioning. And this is sort of the bottom of that X. And inside the chromosome is DNA very tightly wound up. And as we unwind it, we find these these kind of helices here. This is not the double helix of DNA that you're familiar with, but this is a helix of, of DNA wrapped around histones, proteins. So it's all packaged up in there, and as it unwinds and unwinds and unwinds, finally you get to this double helix. Okay? And the double helix is famous because for a long time people had no idea how this DNA could record our heredity, how could it record our traits, and how it could pass that on from generation to generation. And people set out uh, more than 50 years ago uh, to, to, to understand how that works. And in, in their approach, they, they did something which has come to be called structural biology. They look to find the structure of the DNA. And by finding the structure, they can figure out how it functions. Rosalind Franklin, a woman, and, and in the 50s, uh, not a lot of women were doing x-ray diffraction on molecules, got these amazing uh, electromicrographs of DNA 
And actually, if you know how to read these micrographs, they tell you something about the separation between the base pairs and the DNA. And she started to figure out what the organization of DNA was. <clears throat> Depending on who you believe, somehow these guys got her data, either legitimately or illegitimately, and they started to build a model of DNA based on that data. And they got it right. They got the model right. This is Watson and Crick, by the way. Watson is still alive. Crick passed away just a couple of years ago. This model that they built was only verified in, in its true structural form uh, uh, in, the, in, in the early 80s. This is a, it's a crystal structure. It's a, it's a process by which you can actually crystallize something and then do electron diffraction. And instead of getting these blobs, you actually get the coordinates of the, of the molecule. And so the structure of DNA was finally resolved. And then I come along in the 90s and start playing around with it on the computer, doing simulations of DNA. Because as I told you, structure and function are connected. So here's, a, here's, a, here's an actual crystal structure of DNA. You'll notice that it's not perfect. See how this, this, this base and this base are a little skewed? It's not a, a, a model. It's actually uh, from, the, from, from, from data. And um, for those of you not familiar, this is the sugar phosphate backbone going around, two of them. It's, a, it's an, it's an anti-parallel double helix. And each one of these little platforms is a base pair. And there's, there's 12 base pairs here. And I'm just showing you one of the base pairs from, from the top. And you see guanine and cytosine. And you see how they're matched up. This is a, one molecule and this is another molecule and they're touching each other. And in all the textbooks and so on, you see this model, or something like this model. You say, okay, that's how DNA holds together. In fact, there's a model of DNA at the Lawrence Berkeley lab, and it's like something you can play on. It's, it's metal, and there, and there are metal bars between these guys. But I want to show you that, first of all, DNA doesn't ever exist as we know it like this. It always has stuff around it. What do you suppose this red and white stuff is? Take a guess what the red and white stuff is. Yes, over there. Go ahead. Pardon? Blood. That's a very good guess. It's a constituent of blood. It's a very, very basic constituent of blood. Much more basic than blood itself. Another guess? Yeah? It's water. That's right. These red balls are oxygen and the white ones are hydrogen. This is H2O. You can see each one has two hydrogens and one oxygen. DNA is always surrounded by water. And one of the things I can do with a computer simulation is I can look at how the DNA breathes in the context of this water. So this is just one base pair of DNA. I've cut away the rest. I'm simulating a whole double helix of DNA with water all around it, but I've cut away everything but this one base pair. And what you see there is that the DNA actually breathes. You see these hydrogen bonds, you'll see it open up a little bit and then close up again. They're not static. They're dynamic. And you say, oh, DNA is dynamic. Yeah, but, but rivers also move and so on. Remember, we were talking about time scales. What do you think the time scale of this simulation is? I'd like to, I'd like to get a wild guess. Yeah. I'm sorry? 100 years. No, it's much shorter. Much shorter. Yeah. Although that's a good, I should say that's a good time scale for changes in the DNA. And we'll come back to that later. But this is just motion. Yeah. Sure. Someone else want to guess? Okay. Millisecond. Millisecond. How much is a millisecond? Not long. It's a thousandth of a second. Faster than that. Nope. Much faster than a millisecond. Much shorter time. Yeah. Ten minutes. Ten minutes. <laughs> no, you went. You went the other way. <laughs> That's okay. It's okay. No, I thought. 
I thought, uh, uh, yeah? A microsecond, a thousandth of a thousandth of a second. A millionth of a second. It's much shorter than that. Okay. Nanosecond, picosecond. Okay. This turns out to be about a hundred picoseconds or a, or a tenth of a nanosecond. It's a tenth of a billionth of a second. Really short time. And I, you know, and I spend my time doing this, you know, like doing these simulations on why do you bother? You know, like, like in the time it took you to do this, this happened more than a trillion billion times, right? I mean, you know, so why are you bothering? Well, we can learn a lot about this because this is the time scale on which molecules do their thing. Actually, it's not doing much on this time scale, but, but you know, it will if we go out just 100 times longer, which would only be, you know, 10 nanoseconds or 100 nanoseconds. Here's DNA. This is DNA with water all around it. And, and what I'm looking at here is how uh, damaged DNA behaves. Every cell in your body, you got like 10 trillion cells, 100 trillion cells. Every cell in your body, every day, sustains something like 40,000 losses of DNA bases. 40,000 of, of, of a base just coming off the DNA. Can, can you imagine uh, what the consequences of those losses of DNA bases might be? Sorry? Go ahead, raise your hand. Yeah? Aging. Could be aging. We don't really even fully understand aging. That's still kind of an abstract concept, believe it or not, at the level of molecular biology. Um, there are some theories about how aging works, but we're still not there when we're looking at molecules. Um, but it probably does contribute to aging, yeah? Disease. Disease. That's excellent. Disease. So, for example, um, any kind of genetic diseases where, um, for example, your DNA is no longer giving the correct instructions for the proteins might be incurred by losing bases, especially if the cell divides right when you've got that damaged DNA. Then you're copying a piece of DNA without the information, and you're going to have a, a cell with a mutation in it. Okay, so this kind of damage can lead to mutations. In point of fact, since I told you 40,000 bits of damage every day in every cell, and here you guys are, day after day, still living, still breathing, pretty happy most of the time, um, what's really happening to that damage? I think I heard it. It's being repaired. In fact, in two weeks, there's going to be a lecture on DNA repair, and you're going to learn all about that. Um, but what I want you to notice is from the simulation, we originally thought that if you take a base out, you're just going to have a static hole in the DNA. And what you see from this simulation is that that hole is anything but static. It's, it's dynamic. And the protein has to not recognize the hole itself. It recognizes the flexibility of the DNA, which is incurred by this loss. So proteins are playing these tricks, and we're trying to figure out how they're working. And it doesn't stick something in that hole. Rather, it looks if it can bend the DNA. And when it finds it can bend the DNA in a special way, it knows there's an abasic damage there, and it fixes it. OK. So let's talk about proteins themselves. Since I've, I've told you that you know, your chromosomes unwound become you know, the instructions for proteins. Basically, a piece of DNA is copied into a message. It's called messenger RNA. It's just it's effectively a chemical analog to DNA. It's almost the same thing. And then there's another thing called transfer RNA, which you don't really need to know about. But the point is that the instructions for DNA become the recipe for proteins. And that protein production work goes on in a, in a, in a large beast. It's very tiny to our eye, but it's large relative to other molecules in the cell, called a ribosome. I said it's large relative to other molecules in the cell, yet there are about a million of them in your cells. 
Okay, so there's lots of them. These are the protein machines or the protein-making machines, the factories of proteins. There's something like, I see there's a typo here, there's something like 50 different proteins plus very long pieces of RNA molecules which go into fo forming this large complex that, that makes uh, your, your proteins. So the ribosomes are, are, are very complicated, and it wasn't until just a few years ago that we had this nice structure of the RNA. Before that, we just knew there was a little blob there. We couldn't figure out how it works. Now we even see where these transfer RNAs sit. Here's one, two, three of them. And, um, and we know a lot about how this works just in the last five years. So remember, I'm talking about the golden age of biology. Things are really starting to fly in terms of how we're learning about this stuff. I'll give you a quick little cartoon-like movie of how this works. So um, this is the large ribosomal unit. There's uh, the small ribosomal unit. The transfer RNAs are loading up with amino acids. Here comes the message. This is the messenger RNA. And it's going to sit on the ribosome, and the ribosome's going to pump out a, a protein. And there it is. What the ribosome was doing, and I'll go back just a little bit just to emphasize that point. What the ribosome is doing is you see it started with a methionine. It, 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 it took a methionine via the transfer RNA. That's the beginning of the message. Then it adds a proline. Then it moves the message along and adds a leucine. What it's doing is it's creating a peptide bond between each of these amino acids. And so it's creating this protein. So the take-home message is that the ribosomes create the proteins by linking together amino acids. Okay. So that's how you make a protein. But how do you make a protein fold up and do the amazing things that proteins do? We'll talk about that in a moment. For now, I just want to give you one example, and I literally could give you tens of thousands of examples of different kinds of proteins and all the kinds of things they do. This is a particularly interesting one because this protein is a motor. So here's a, a schematic of that motor. And if we didn't have uh, uh, the, the cutting-edge experimental work, we wouldn't know what the structure was. This is the structure of this piece of the motor. And this motor, called an F1, F0 ATPase, ATPase because it burns ATP as its fuel, this motor runs the flagella on the back of bacteria to help them swim. And this motor actually turns large uh, flagella, well, large relative to the bacteria, flagella, and the, and the, and the bacteria can swim. And how this motor works is basically uh, uh, it's several proteins that can fit together and, and co-rotate around each other. And it's a, it's a rotary motor. And it, 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 it hydrolyzes ATP and it um, turns around. And I'll show you a little movie of how we're understanding that works. So you see these, these, are, these are four different proteins and they're all interconnected and and running around in this fashion. And this, this actually pumps an ion across this channel. And when you, without getting into the chemiosmotic theory of, 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 uh, of transduction of energy in cells, what this means is that this, this creates force in the cell from the energy in the ATP. Okay. So, so I'm using some big words now and then just to give you a hint what's, what's ahead for you who are bound for, for, for college and all these great science classes. Okay, you can read more about all kinds of proteins at the Protein Data Bank. They have a molecule of the month. Every month they have a new molecule, and they have a nice little essay on it and how it works and pictures and all kinds of cool stuff. I'm going to talk about more, more precisely about the building blocks of proteins, and then we're going to fold up our own protein. Are we about halfway? Okay. So 
These are the uh, uh, 20 amino acids. Um, this is the acid part of any amino acid, the carboxylic acid part. This is the amine part, and that's where it gets its name, amino acid. And this part, this methyl group, is, is, is a side chain of this particular amino acid, alanine. And, um, and that's the, one of the smallest side chains you can have. Most of the other side chains are a little bit bigger. And side chains will either be hydrophobic, like you see in tan, hydrophilic, like you see in green, or charged, like you see down here. And those properties of hydrophobic and hydrophilic, what are those properties? Can you tell me what hydrophilic means? Yeah. Attracted to water, right. Loving water. It's, I think, Greek for loving water. Uh, hydrophobic. Fearing water, that's right. That's the literal translation. And what it means is that it, it has particular electronic chemical properties such that they tend to clump together and get out of the water. So if you were making a protein, let me just ask you this, this, this thought question. I want you to design a protein which is just a little ball. Just a little ball. It doesn't do anything. It just, it just starts as a string of amino acids and folds up into a ball. Which amino acids are you going to put on the inside? The hydrophobic or the hydrophilic? Well, remember, all proteins are sitting in water. So you probably put the hydrophobic ones on the inside and the hydrophilic ones on the outside, and then the energetics, as I'm calling it, will be satisfied. Everything will be fine. If you put the hydrophobic ones on the outside, they'll be afraid of the water. They'll try to get away from it. Hydrophilic ones will be trying to get out, and the protein will invert and go back into its ball. And if you don't design it well, it won't fold up at all. That's a kind of key point. Okay, folding of proteins takes place on different time scales. Uh, what I mean by that is that you get uh, uh, bits of folded structure, alpha helices, beta sheets, and so on, on different time scales, uh, depending on how long you look. And um, this is just a, a, a chart coming from the, from the project called Folding at Home. You guys can go to this website. It's at Stanford, folding.stanford. And you can download their software on your computer and actually participate in this project. And the outcome of this project is to start to understand how proteins fold up by doing simulations. So I'm only showing some of the amino acids of the protein. I'm showing the, the hydrophobic ones. And you're going to see these residues coming together to form that clump that I talked about. OK, you see that? And there's one residue which, which is actually hydrophobic, but it tends to stick out. And that's because it interacts with something else that I'm not showing. OK. So this is, this is their simulation of the protein folding up. I see that it, it didn't end with the folded structure. Um, OK, but you can see here it's almost all folded. This is called an alpha helix. This is a, 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 like a coiled region. And I think somewhere here there might even be what you call a baited strand. This is really not a protein. It's, t it's very small. It's only 30 amino acids. Proteins really start at 60 to 80. And, the, and a common average-sized garden variety protein is more like 300 amino acids. So it's more complicated than this. Why didn't they simulate a big protein folding up? Can anybody guess? Why did they use a small protein? You know. I'm sorry? Yeah? Go ahead. It takes longer. A lot longer. A lot longer. Yeah? Well, in real life, it doesn't take long at all. It takes on the order of uh, the fastest proteins fold up in a microsecond, and the slowest proteins fold up in seconds. And most proteins fold up on the time scale of milliseconds. Pretty fast. But on the computer, to simulate a millisecond is like forever. 
Remember I showed you simulations of like a nanosecond or less? That's because that's all we can do. Right now, we're just getting simulations. Depends on the size, of course, but for a protein this size, you can simulate a few microseconds. For proteins larger, you can't simulate that long. So the larger the protein, the more work you have to do. It's a lot of computational work. And, um, and we need computer scientists to help figure out how to, how to, how to, how to lessen that work. Okay. So what do proteins see? And I, I answer the question here, water everywhere. But I want to remind you, they don't really see anything because they don't have eyes. So what I mean by see is, is, is like what's right in front of their noses. And what's right in front of their noses is water. Water's everywhere. And in order to go from one place to another, can you guess how proteins move around? That's a good guess, but it's not true. It's close. It's, it's maybe metaphorically true, but I want to make an important distinction between swimming and bumping around. I didn't ask you this, but if I asked you to go to that place you were going to go on your bicycle to the store or the, or the, or the school or something like that, if I asked you to go in a bumper car blindfolded, blindfolded, do you think you'd ever get there? Eventually. Eventually you would. Take a very long time. And it turns out that the farther you have to go, the longer it takes if you're going by random motion. And proteins move by random motion. Unless they're coupled to other proteins which are helping them move. And it's one of these paradoxes at the molecular level. It's the difference between controlled action and uncontrolled action. If you were in a bumper car over here and you wanted to go to a spot over there and I put some protective guardrail so you wouldn't go off the stage, even blindfolded, how long do you think it would take to get there? Yeah. A few seconds or maybe a minute or something. Not very long, right? Because it's just right over there. So short distances. The point about proteins is they move around by random motion but that random motion is fast and the distances they have to move are small. Okay, we're looking for our protein, we're swimming around in the, in the cell. There's the metaphor swimming, but really by random motion. We see a lot of water. We see something, we say, oh, I see something there. It looks like more water. Oh, I'm getting closer still. Oh, it's a protein. So as I strip away the water, you can start to see other proteins. You have to get right up next to them, bump into them uh, before you can see them. Okay, so now we're going to do our activity. And our activity is to make a human protein. Actually, uh, 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 lots of organisms have this protein. It's chymotrypsin. It's a digestive protein. And this protein is going to fold up by the principles I told you, that the hydrophobic pieces are going to go in. Hydrophilic pieces are going to point out. And um, we're going to do it up here in a moment. And I just want to point out there's going to be a catalytic site circled here in red. And it involves three special residues, especially this serine 195, but it has to be coupled with these other two. And, if, and you see where these residues are in the protein sequence. This is the protein sequence. You see that they're far apart. But when it folds up, they're all right next to each other. We're going to have the same thing here. We're going to have these residues start out away from each other, and when the protein folds up, they'll be right next to each other. This protein digests other proteins. It's a, it's a, it's a cannibal protein, but we're grateful for it because when we eat proteins, we can't absorb the raw protein that we eat. We need to digest it first. We break it down into what? Amino acids, exactly. So we bring it back to its building blocks. So here's the amino acids. Now, I want you to imagine that you're a protein. Actually, yeah, let's imagine that you're an amino acid. So you're just a tiny, tiny piece that might be a protein. I want you to 
Close your eyes, put your hands out. Don't try not to mess with the person's hair in front of you, but put your hands out a little bit and, and imagine you're feeling around. You're a protein or an amino acid, and I want you to reach under your chair and see if there isn't an envelope there with something inside. Some of you will have an envelope. And, and you need to look at the chairs nearby in case there's a chair nearby with an envelope. Okay. Okay, now, as you get the envelopes, I want you to hold them up. Hold them up. The envelopes... The envelope should look like this. Okay, I'm counting 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14... We need 20, 20, 25, 26, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Come on. Now, if you have an envelope and you don't want to use it, give it to someone nearby. If you're an adult and you want to and give it to a student, that'd be fine. That's a good idea, maybe, unless you want to be up here. Okay. Now, open your envelopes quietly because proteins don't talk. They're, they're silent. They do their work very quietly. Open your envelopes and look at what do they say. Now, some of the envelopes will say, congratulations, you are an amino acid. And you will be one of these amino acids. You will come up over here. You're going to be part of the enzyme. A few, a few of you are going to be special in that you're going to be part of a ribosome. That's the engine that makes proteins. You'll also come up over here. And then the others of you are going to be part of the meal. You're going to get digested. And that meal is just going to be represented by a little a short peptide, a piece of a protein. And that meal uh, is going to come up over there with uh, Frankie Tate. And uh, so if you guys would now uh, 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 come on up with your, with your slip of paper, slowly, quietly, but, but promptly, we can get started making our protein. Again, if you're, if, you're, if you're afraid of heights, you can give the paper to someone else. Otherwise, come on up. Okay, and hold your, hold your papers out so I can see what the numbers that are on them. Okay, yeah, just stand back here. Not the congratulations, I want to see the number. Hold them up. No, the number. Not the congratulations, the number. Oh, you guys, ah, you're part of the meal. Those of you who are part of the meal, head over that way. All the meals go over here. The numbered amino acids stay here. What do you got? I want to see the numbers. The numbers. Everyone hold up their number. You're a ribosome. Come over here. Okay. Okay, great. Keep coming up. Stand back a little bit so everybody can come on the stage. Keep piling back. We've got a lot of people who have to come on. You're part of the ribosome. You come over here. What do you got? Tyrosine. Okay, hold your numbers up so I can see them all. I've got to make sure we're all here. Otherwise, we can't make a protein. Uh, you're part of the meal. You need to go up over there. Okay, be careful. Be careful. Don't fall off the stage. What do you got? Let me see the back. Okay, you're part of the meal also. Large meal today. Yummy. Okay, okay, where's one? One? No, one? Two. Two? Three? Okay. Four? Four? I need to see your number. Ribosome, all right. Four? No, four? Five? Six? Seven? 
Eight? Nine? Ten? Eleven? Twelve? Okay. We need two more volunteers. Oh, boy. Okay, this guy and... Um, okay, come on up. Sorry, but, you know, that's why... I just picked the first hands I see. Okay, you're going to be, I think, numero uno. Oh, that says six. Oh, these weren't numbered. Um, I was afraid of that. Oh, that. Oh, right. We needed six. Okay. There you go. You're Valine. Valine. She's also Valine, though. Oh. Oh, you're also six. Oh, then I needed five. Sorry, you're Lysine. Yes. There you go. All right. We don't have two fives, do we? You're five. Which numbers don't we have? One. One and four. One, two. We don't have two. We don't have two? Gosh, these are all in different order. Okay. Um, All right. Well, we have a couple here. So we'll... If something can go wrong, it always does. Okay. So those, uh, the last two people, you're just going to be one and you're going to be four. You won't have a piece of paper. All right. Where's my ribosome? Over here. Okay. Here are these ties. Now what you guys are going to have to do, you're the protein-making machine. The amino acids are going to be coming through, and you're going to be tying their legs together at the bottom, just like a sock hop race. Okay? Just with bow ties. Okay, so where's one? One. All right. Where's two? No, no. Come over to the ribosome. You're coming into the ribosome. Random motion here. Random motion. Okay, their legs get tied together. And then, and then the next person does the next now. Three? Where's three? Are you three? Here's three. Oh, there's little three. He's little guy. Okay. Tie these two together. Number four. Where's our other ribosome? Number four gets tied here. Okay. Yeah, just a bow tie. I'm going to help you ribosome too. Otherwise, we'll never get done. All right, now you guys are in motion, so start moving around and move that way. There you go, real slowly. Motion, motion, a little bit of motion, just a little bit. Just pick your feet up and put them down and sort of gently move that way. Okay, keep moving, keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. There you go, keep moving, keep going. That's it. You guys got to keep moving. You can't stay still. You have to find your way over to number one. You have to find your way over to number two. Keep going, keep going. Okay, this is thermal motion. These guys are moving around, but we've cheated a little bit. We've put some numbers up here to help them. Otherwise, we would truly have a random process, and it would never happen on the time scale in which we're doing the demonstration. But this is supposed to represent random motion, and this is the sequence of amino acids that the messenger RNA specified. The ribosome has created it. Okay, keep moving, keep moving. A little bit motion, a little bit motion. The ribosome is doing such a good job despite all this thermal motion. Keep moving, keep moving. Thermal motion. Keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. Yep, yep. Keep going, keep going. Some people are... You just stand there. Just stand there. Yeah, now, that, now of course, the... Keep going, keep going. Don't, try not to get your legs too far apart or you're going to have a problem. There you go. Doing a good job, doing a good job. Doing a good job. All right, keep going, keep going. All right, so this is 
This is, oh boy, don't try to catch up to her. Okay, all right, here we go. All right, don't want to have any injuries up here. All right, all right, keep coming. Are you number eight? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you better get up here. You're part of the, part of the catalytic triad. All right, good job. And you're the Syrian, aren't you? Okay, how's your reading? Good? Can you read that? Yeah. All right, I want you to read it out loud. I am... I am the what? I am the histidine. I am next to histidine, and histidine is next to aspartic acid. 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 I can untie the bonds that hold the food protein together. Okay, so he's the serine in this catalytic triad. And here's our folded protein. Look how nicely folded they are. They've got their hydrophobic backs together, their hydrophilic hands out in the water. And here comes the meal, randomly diffusing by, and it comes over to the active site. Sometimes they're chaperones. They actually exist. Okay, untie these bonds as quick as you can. Now, as the amino acids are cleaved off, they float away off the stage into the bloodstream where they, nu- where they provide nutrients to the body. And the ribosome also slowly wanders away. You can go. Slowly, banister. All right, so this, this ribosome, this uh, a serine protease, this, this uh, chymotrypsin, has now digested the entire meal. Let's give a big hand of applause to our protein and to our meal. Excellent. Now, of course, if this were real protein, it would just wander around for a long time, aimlessly, until it comes upon another meal. Um, But we're going to untie them and let them go sit down. All right. Thank you so much. Big, big thanks to Frankie and everybody. Okay. All right. Slowly, Bannister, please. We had to uh, sign a form saying that this is something that's ordinarily done in a classroom. So, so we uh, want to make sure that it, it, it doesn't get out of the normal realm. Okay. Um, now I want to talk about the human genome. I've talked about DNA and how it codes for proteins. I've talked about proteins, the kinds of things they can do, and how they fold up. And once they're folded, they perform functions. We, we, we made an enzyme. That enzyme digested other proteins. When you have insults to the DNA in the body, insults might come from uh, UV radiation, might come from x-rays that are naturally occurring, might come from uh, various sources. Uh, Are we out of time? Okay. We have about 10 minutes. Damage might come from various sources. It turns out, by the way, that oxygen is very reactive. And we think of oxygen as a wonderful thing, right? But it's very reactive. It's highly corrosive. That's why metals, when you put them in an oxygenated environment, rust. And so oxygen, even though it does us a lot of good, also does us some harm. And that can create problems in the DNA. All these problems can create mutations. Let me give you an example of two mutations that you might have right now in some cell of your body. This is the DNA, this top row of letters. This is, this is what you were born with. And then in one cell, an adenine has been changed to a guanine. Okay. Now it turns out that in this particular sequence, GCA, GCG, those codons, those three bases in a row, code for the same amino acid. So that's no change to you. You still have the same recipe for proteins. 
it's a little bit different wording, but if I say a pinch of salt or a tiny bit of salt, eh, it's the same thing. Other mutations, like changing this um, adenosine, excuse me, this guanine to adenosine, will actually change the amino acid that that DNA codes for. And we've gone from an arginine in our protein to a lysine. That's a different amino acid. It's also a positively charged one, but it is different. And that different amino acid will have different chemical properties. Remember our serine protease? If that serine had not been here in position 9, if that had been a threonine or something like that, our serine protease wouldn't work, or it wouldn't work very efficiently. So if you have an enzyme in your body, if you have, excuse me, if you have a cell in your body which is producing a particular protein, a particular enzyme, and the recipe for that changes, it may cause problems. That's the usual consequence of mutations, but I also want to point out that mutations are also what enable us to change biologically. And we would be running around looking like mice if there weren't for the big E word that takes organisms from one species to another. What's that E word? Evolution. And evolution is mutations in the DNA which change the recipe for the proteins. Okay, so that's all that is. Now I want to talk about our genome, the human genome, and I don't have time to go through it all and go through all the different chromosomes. I just want to point out a couple of interesting things. You can read that, for example, uh, the chromosome 5 has genes of interest, including one that is implicated in attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. You want anybody to accuse you of having that right now. But anyway, just because you might be getting restless. Okay, obesity, asthma, cancer, all implicated due to uh, mutations in genes on this chromosome. Okay, but that's just a few diseases. And in fact, most diseases are not one, one gene, one mutation. There are many genes, many changes, and so on. So disease is usually complicated. Uh, it's usually not just one gene and one change. It's many changes and many differences and, and a, a sort of anti-synergy of effects. Now, another thing I want to point out about chromosome 5 is that it's got this giant gene desert. What do you think a gene desert is? Uh, go ahead. There's no difference in the sequence? Uh, okay, that's, that's, that's sort of true, but uh, the sequence might actually change, but it doesn't, yeah? Without genes in it, that's right. The, 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 so the sequence may not change or it may change, but it doesn't matter because there's no gene information in it, apparently. And we're still working on what these gene deserts really actually mean. We still don't have it exactly figured out. At first we thought they mean nothing, let's just get rid of them. But then we realized that, gosh, a lot of these gene deserts have something to do with the difference between us and mice. <laughs> After all, most of our genes are pretty much the same. So it's still the, the open question what these gene deserts are doing. And I want to point out that this particular chromosome, along with a couple others, were sequenced right up here in Walnut Creek as part of the Human Genome Project. And they're going on to do all kinds of other sequencing. In terms of comparing our genome to other organisms, um, we have uh, about a billion base pairs. Um, and then you see all these other organisms with smaller genomes. So you think, oh yeah, well that makes sense. We're human after all. We've got bigger genomes than anyone else. Well, I can name something you ate probably in the last week or so that has a bigger genome than we have. Yeah? 
Potato? I'm not sure about the genome of potato. I'm not actually a, an encyclopedia of genomes, believe it or not. But I can tell you that corn, so I'm not going to make you guess all the vegetables and so on that you've eaten. I can tell you that corn has a genome that's roughly, I think, either two or four times larger than ours, so much bigger. And someone asked at the last very good question, said, well, what do they do with all those extra genes? They don't really have extra genes. They just have more genome. It's redundant, a lot of redundancy, and it's not clear exactly what all that redundancy is doing for the organism. Um, but here are some other organisms and, um, and, and just some idea of, 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 of uh, the size of the genomes. An important point is that down here where you have bacteria, you have you know, something like uh, five to, to seven times less genes than, than, than we do, but only five to seven less. I mean, it's not like these bacteria is a lot smaller than us. So you might think that like it's a lot, lot less genes. No, no, no. Bacteria have five to six thousand genes, and we have about thirty thousand genes. So we're only like five times larger in terms of our genome. Apparently, the difference between us and bacteria is not just in the number of genes, but in the quality of the genes. It's not the quantity; it's the quality, right? It's 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 the quality, and it's how they interact with each other, and so on, and and, and some complexity which I won't get into now, but having to do with the way the genes can get cut up and recombined. Okay. In comparing different species, there's one really gold standard for looking at biodiversity in the world, and it's to use this protein machine. Remember I said that, that we need a ribosome to make proteins? Can you think of any organisms which don't have ribosomes and therefore don't need to make, or excuse me, don't need to make proteins and therefore don't have ribosomes? Can you think of any organisms? I'll give you a hint. It's a trick question. It's a trap. You still want to answer? Okay. Bacteria. Bacteria. Bacteria need to make proteins too. There are no organisms which don't have to make proteins. So this turns out to be a great way to look at the changes in different organisms because everybody needs to, to have this machinery. And so we can compare the machinery from, from organism to organism to organism. All right. Uh, and in fact, the blue part here is the 16S uh, ribosomal subunit that, that we usually look at. Now, wow, a lot of letters. This is not anything like a genome. This is just a tiny piece of a genome. It's the piece that codes for the ribosomal sub subunit from Dros Drosophila. Anybody have any idea what Drosophila are? Fruit flies. Homo sapiens. Anybody ever hear Homo sapiens? Okay, that's us. That's us, human beings. Musculus. Mouse. That's right. Sorry that I'm encouraging yelling out, but it's very hard for me to even see your hands. Okay, so these are the ribosomal subunits from the different organisms, and we can compare them all by aligning them in just the way we had aligned those sequences early in the talk when I told you about abstract alignments. Here's a piece, just a little piece, of the alignment of these different ribosomal subunits. And you see by the stars where they're identical and the gaps where they're not identical. Okay? So this is an alignment. And why would we do that? I mean, do you remember what I was saying about conservation and so on? We can simultaneously learn two things. One, we can learn what's really important. Like if every organism in the world, in the whole world, has this sequence of DNA bases, then that's probably important. And probably, you know, you can't have life without it. Or at least not as we know it. On the other hand, places where they're different tell us about how different these organisms are, how far apart they are in evolution. And by figuring out how far apart organisms are in evolution, we can see what the true biodiversity on this earth is. So that's, that's, that's the very last thing I'm going to show you. 
To see the vastness of biodiversity, think small. So, so on this big chart of biodiversity, you see this tree. This kind of goes back to a hypothetical beginning of life, which we don't you know, have, have uh, uh, the recipe for. But you know, after that, everything's branching out. We are up here in this sort of rather ignominious spot called animals. Where do you think plants are? Well, they're right next to us. They're actually not very far away. Only separated by about 570 million years. What about mushrooms? Mushrooms aren't even like plants. They're not like us. They must be pretty far away somewhere. Nope, they're right there. Okay, so all the life that we see and treasure and, and, and eat and cultivate and enjoy is all up here in terms of genetic biodiversity. Most of the life that we, that most of the biodiversity in the world is in the life we don't see. Here's our archaebacteria, which is a, not really a bacteria at all. It's sort of a, it's sort of a, a, a halfway between bacteria and us. And then you've got true bacteria. And all the biodiversity you see is mainly in the micro, level of the microorganisms. Okay. So when you want to think about all the realm of possibilities of life, think small. Okay. So that's pretty much it. Uh, there are so many answers that we've already got now. We know the structure of DNA. We know what DNA does, how it codes for proteins. We know what ribosomes do, how they make proteins, how proteins fold up. Not quite, but we've almost got that. And so on and so forth. We've got a lot of answers, but there are many, many more questions. And there's a bright future for all of you if you want to go into computer science, if you want to go into physics and chemistry as well as biology, there will be a place for you to help uh, solve these problems. Okay, so here's some uh, websites that you might want to jot down, and Dick Farnsworth will point out that they'll be on the Science on Saturday website. I want to thank everybody for coming. You did a great job, and I appreciate it. And it's wonderful.